I'm excited to uh, get into the God's Word with you this morning, but before we do that, I'd, I'd love to pray with you, and we have a few things to pray about. Uh, first of all, just to really thank God for what He's done for each one of us. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and we have good reason to celebrate communion because um, communion is not to make you saved, it's because you are saved, right? We understand that. Um, I'm, I'm aware that there's individuals in the congregation this morning who are going to be taking communion for the first time because they're new to faith in Christ. That's exciting. Yeah. And one particular individual I know of for sure who would be his first time taking communion because in the country he grew up in was not allowed to go to church or take communion. So how fortunate are we to live in the United States of America? Right? So in, in that vein, I understand there's a very important day coming up this week. And word on the street is that we need to celebrate our veterans who are among us. She thought I was going to say Election Day, didn't she? <laughs> on Friday is Veterans Day. So if there's veterans in the house this morning, would you stand so we could acknowledge you? Thank you for what you've done for us, and uh, we have the freedom to vote this week because of individuals like you. Um, election, very important this week. Obviously, every election is important, but you get to exercise your freedom to vote. Last week, you heard my position on Proposal 3, and I had individuals who approached me this week and said, what's wrong with Proposal 3? Um, apparently, I shared that I thought it was wicked and evil, but I didn't say why. So in that vein, um, William Wagner, who's a professor, a law professor, and a uh, former United States District Judge, prepared a really great brief that's on the table out in the atrium this morning. We printed off multiple copies of that. William presented a really good legal argument for it. If you're interested in reading that, grab it on the table on your way out this morning. Um, there's only 50 copies, so if you take all of them, we'll print more off. Um, for the next service, but Jeff did put it in an email yesterday that he sent out to the church a link for it, and some of the feedback that we received from individuals was, I thought a church was supposed to be separate from the things of the state, the separation of church and state. Um, it would be very important for you to understand that we haven't violated anything here at New Hope by taking a position on these things, but also there's some things that are worth taking a position on. And there's some things that are so unholy, you have to speak against it. Uh, Proposition 3 is unholy, it is wicked, it is evil, and it needs to be set back to the pit of hell from which it came. Um, so you can get mad at me or send me your emails. Free to do that. I just want you to know there's things for which we have to take a stand and stand loudly. And God's truth is something we'll never be ashamed to take a stand of here at New Hope. I'm going to pray with you this morning and ask that you would join me. I'm very excited to get into the things that we're going to look at in God's Word this morning and ask that God would really teach us through His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we don't enter into these things lightly, nor do we want to enter into them with an opinion on one side or the other because our feelings betray us, but rather because of what your word says, and your word is truth. And so we ask that you help us to have eyes wide open this morning about where we're at in our relationship with you, our responsibility 
before you in our daily lives. We come before you this morning as individuals who live in a free society with an ability to express our voice, and the ability to express our voice is going to be heard on Tuesday. God, I ask that you would use this election to accomplish your purposes that are coming up, that your will would be done. And that's so hard for us, Father, to acknowledge that we want your will first and foremost, because we often want our will done. So we echo what our Lord and Savior said, that your kingdom is in heaven. We ask that you would bring your kingdom and that your will would be done here on earth as it's done in heaven. But we recognize your will is not always done here because it's a planet full of people who are opposed to you. Ultimately, your will will be accomplished. We ask, God, that your kingdom would come even in our lifetime, that we would see all of your will accomplished here on this planet in our lifetime. Thank you for placing us here in this moment in time. You've chosen us to be here in this moment in time. And this planet is on our watch right now. So, Father, we take responsibility just as Daniel did during his time for the sins that were committed among his nation. We grieve over the murders that have taken place here, Father, over the brokenness that's on this planet and in our own nation. And we take responsibility for where we have fallen short. God, start with us first. Help us to see the log in our own eye that we might help others to see also the truth of your word. In that way, God, we come to your word now this morning and ask that you would allow us to see ourselves in the story and to see your great redeeming love. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's jump right in with very, very good news. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Amen to that. If you're new to church, that verse is speaking of something very specific. It's speaking of a new beginning in Jesus. Everybody can have that, regardless of your past, regardless of where you have come from. If you acknowledge Jesus the Christ as your Lord and Savior, God Himself commits to you that He forgives you completely of all of your sins and that you can put your past in your past. And He will bring you into a new life, an eternal life, and your destiny will be heaven. The Bible says that's true for every single person who comes to faith in Jesus. For this reason, because he died for your sins, he was buried, and he was resurrected, and he's coming again one day. That's true according to the Bible. Now, if you accept that truth, if you receive that into your life, what God has promised, at death we're told that you're transferred from hell to heaven. Heaven is your destiny because God did something very specific for you. God reconciled you to Himself. In other words, He made you holy in His sight. There's a pretty good chance that sitting here right now this morning, you don't necessarily feel so holy because you can look back over your last week or over the last month or the last 10 years of your life and say, I did some unholy things. But if you're in Jesus this morning, God sees you as holy. And while all of that is true, it does not mean that God is done working on you. He's still sanctifying you. And the sanctification process is lifelong. 
Now, last week we saw in Jacob's life that he was being sanctified. He was being shaped by God, being transformed into a new and improved Jacob for God's greater purposes. That was a great story to be able to look at. Well, in this next section, what we're going to see is how the transformation that takes place in your life and takes place in my life, how that actually shows up in our daily actions. More specifically this, the reconciliation that God brought to you, it will show up in your earthly relationships on a daily basis. Now, before we move ahead into the story, let me just remind you this morning that if you are in Jesus this morning, you are already reconciled to God, which makes it possible for you to reconcile to the people of earth. And that's a multifaceted responsibility. So let me go back to verse 17 where we just started a moment ago before we jump into Genesis. Look with me at verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's describing the gospel. We have a responsibility, God says, because we know what reconciliation looks like, because we've been reconciled to God, we now have the responsibility to help others see what it looks like to be reconciled to God as we reconcile with each other. Now, in Jacob's situation, because he's a changed man, because we've seen this transformation taking place in his life, he's personally going to take the next steps and he's going to deal with a real reconciliation with his brother whom he swindled, which is pretty scary if we're going to admit it. Because most people, they would prefer to move into the future without having to deal with their past. But unless Jacob addresses the things that he did and the people that he hurt, he's going to be running the rest of his life and he won't have any closure whatsoever. So we pick it up in Genesis chapter 31, verse 17. It says this, Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels and drove away all his livestock and all his property. Just to pause there for a second, it's talking about sending them out, not driving them away as though he'll never see them again, but sending them out into the wilderness to get them away from Uncle Laban. Finish with me. And all his property which he gathered, his acquired livestock, which he had gathered in Padan Haran to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing, verse 21. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So he's making haste, and he's escaping by running to the wilderness, but this is completely unknown to Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban doesn't know that they've left, so in order to escape, they've got to run into the wilderness in secret. Now, three days out, and their escape has been uncovered. And unfortunately for Jacob, they're moving at the speed of turtle. They just can't get away. Now, go with me to the next part, verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him 
and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Armean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. Now, at this point, Jacob is 10 days out. He's 200 miles from where he left Laban, and they're traveling really, really slowly with this caravan. And it's easy to overtake them. So God has to say to Laban, do not harm them. Do not even speak evil to them, verse 25. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. And Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? The mistake he's making here is he's assuming that Jacob took them by force. Verse 27, why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre and did not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good nor bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Now, just a question that should appear to you. Why would you even think of wanting to do harm to the same people you claim to want to send out with singing and with dancing? Immediately, you realize Laban is nothing more than a lying, manipulating cheater. If you think I'm being harsh on him, you don't know Laban well enough. This guy uses double talk to make it appear as though he's loyal to God, what in reality, he bows down before these pagan idols that he worships, which is partly why he's so ticked, because those idols are worth a lot of money. Let me show you a phrase that he just pressed down on. But why did you steal my gods? That's what he really ends his argument with. In the Hebrew language, gods in this case is the word teraphim. And these are statues of little household gods. They're, they're made out of valuable metals, sometimes made out of gold. That's not the reason they have so much value, though. Let me show you what Dr. Fruchtenbaum points out in the Hebrew studies. It says this in his quote. Verse 19 indicates that Rachel stole the teraphim. The one who had possession of the household gods could claim ownership of the family property. Taking the teraphim was Rachel's attempt to gain Laban's property for Jacob. The Code of Hammurabi states that whoever has the household gods owns the property. So if you have possession of the household idols, you have the key to the front door of the house, and your name is on the title and deed. That's what Laban is really after. This is a money issue for him. Verse 31. Then Jacob replied to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. In other words, he's saying, I knew you weren't going to send me out with singing and dancing. That was not your plan. But if it's your idols that you're worried about, go ahead, search away. Verse 32, pick it up. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. This adds a little diciness to the story. Verse 33, 
So Laban went into Jacob's tent and, Leah, and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. Smart girl. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot arise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. Very smart girl. And she learned to deceive things from her father, whom she studied under. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. And then a whole new side of Jacob surfaces, one you have not seen to this point in his life. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. The Hebrew word that's used here is karatz in your notes this morning, and it talks about being so angry that you're glowing hot. Ever been so angry that your blood pressure rises and the color of your skin changes color? That your skin changes red? That's what, it's being, that's what it's describing here, and finish it out. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beast I did not bring to you, I bore the loss myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night." Thus I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and the, my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. Whoa, go Jacob. How long has he been waiting to unleash that? Well, if you've ever been in a, a bad employment situation and you've had an employer who mistreated you, you can feel his pain. You know exactly what he's describing here. Verse 42, he goes on to say, if the God of my father, the God of Abram, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. And the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm thinking right here, there's crickets. Because what are you going to say to that? It's, it's all true. Everything he just said is absolutely accurate. That's why Laban, in this case, instead of acknowledging what Jacob has said and how cruelly he's treated Jacob, instead of seeking reconciliation, Laban, well, he's Laban. Go with me back into it. Verse 43, then Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my thought flocks, and all that you see is mine. He's so self-centered that he's willing to negate 20 years of Jacob's work and saying to him, you didn't earn that. That's not yours. Now just envision this. What if your employer followed you out into the parking lot at the end of the day, and as you're getting into your car, said to you, that is not your car, that's my car. You didn't earn that. That's essentially what's going on here. He's totally negating everything that Jacob has done to serve him. 
But remember, God severely warned him, do not speak good or bad. Well, he's dangerously on the line of speaking bad to Jacob. So he resigns himself to covering his back by doing this in verse 43, part B. What can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne? So now, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And there is absolutely no reconciliation here of an authentic basis. Simply, they resolved themselves to establish a peace treaty, essentially saying, you stay on your side, and I'll stay on my side. And these two, as far as Laban is concerned, they're never going to see each other again. But Jacob's ability to demonstrate that he's truly changed and that he's capable of bringing reconciliation to a very difficult situation, it's now going to be given full opportunity to be put on display because after all that he's been through over the course of 20 years, he's now finally going to come face to face with his estranged brother Esau. And by the way, Esau has 400 men with him. Let's move on to chapter 32, verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to see you. He's coming to meet you. And by the way, Jacob, there's 400 men with him. No wonder verse 7 says what verse 7 says. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he has every reason to be. Twenty years have not eliminated the understanding or the memory that Esau has of what his brother did to him. So logically, he's going into preservation mode. Jacob is immediately thinking, what do I have to do to minimize my losses? Because he knows Esau's coming, and he thinks Esau's coming for a slaughter. Back into verse 7, part B, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies, for he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. That's all well and good. But the next thing that you better do if you're walking with God is go to God and plead for protection and intervention. And that's exactly what a man of God would do. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I cross this Jordan. And by the way, he doesn't mean staff employees. He means a staff like a rod for herding sheep. For with my staff only I cross this Jordan, and now I have become two companies Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Wow. Now that's the Jacob of the Bible. 
Do you notice, church, that there's no manipulation in his prayer whatsoever? There's no guile. There's no deceit. There's just a humble saint coming before God who's been transformed. And he's willing to say things exactly like they are. But notice, he's also not afraid to claim the promises of God. At the same time, he's saying, I'm afraid. He's also saying, but God, you're the one who told me to come back. You're the one who said you would bless me. You're the one who said you're with me. I will surely take care of you. Verse 13, so he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him as a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Verse 16, he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in the front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. Now, his instruction process is really clear. He says, I want you to repeat this process, and I'm going to separate you into five groups. And among the five groups, I want you to repeat the same thing every time. And I've counted this up, and it looks like in all, you can check my math on this, it appears he's sending 580 animals as a gift of reparations to his brother. And verse 20 clarifies why. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So his strategy is to buy favor to buy his brother's approval of him. Now, it appears that Jacob and Esau are roughly about a day apart in the wilderness. And we know that people at this period of time didn't travel at night. At least they preferred not to. So everyone settles down at the end of the day for the next day. But before Esau can stop, he sees all this livestock coming toward him. And as they're approaching him, this entourage of Jacob's servants appear. And they keep saying the same thing over and over, and flock after flock after flock of quality livestock. So imagine just being in Esau's shoes for a moment. Esau's watching this, and he's met with these cattle and these sheep and these goats and these donkeys over and over and over, and each is bearing a message. These are from your servant, Jacob. These are a gift for you. And Jacob, he's on his way to see you. No matter how much rage you might still have inside you, this has got to soften you a little bit, at least to the degree that you're going to be curious. Now, at this point, this story takes a very strange twist because Esau has received these animals, night falls, and Jacob has separated himself from his family, and he's on the other side of a river completely alone. And he has this bizarre dream, development, reality. And I find it to be one of the more difficult mysteries of the Bible. You may have a view on it. I'd love to talk to you after the service about it. How you interpret this, just let me show you what I see here. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone 
and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And if you've ever had hip pain at this moment, you're going, ooh. If you've ever broken a hip, you know it would make you pass out or just a blow to the hip. Now, the way most theologians understand this, and I, I think many individuals as they read this understand that there's something supernatural going on here, and this by theologians is referred to as an appearance of the second person to the Trinity, or at least what the Old Testament refers to as the angel of the Lord. Let me show you where that comes from. Keep going with me, verse 26. Then he, meaning this being, this angel of the Lord, said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Remember, he's got a dislocated hip, and he's holding on. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Just pause there for a second. Only God has the authority to change names and give names of this nature. There's been a declaration that your character has changed, so therefore your name has changed. God changes names to match character. We're told there's a name waiting for you in heaven, a name that only God knows and He's going to give it to you when you arrive in eternity that will match your character. God has changed Jacob's name, and He's told him, you're going to be known as Israel, and Israel means striving with God, for you have striven with God and with men. Is that true of Jacob? Absolutely. He has striven with God throughout the course of his life, and he's also contended with mankind throughout his life. Verse 29, keep going now. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he will not answer that question, by the way, going forward. And he, this being, blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now, this event in Jacob's life is not a dream, nor is it written as symbolism, but it's written as fact. He has an actual dislocated hip. Uh, much later in the Old Testament, you're going to see that this has written about, this, this encounter has been written about that you just saw is described this way in Hosea 12.3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, meaning he fought with his brother in his mom's belly. And it goes on to say, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Jacob is this guy who truly has a lifetime history of contesting with others. And he did not hesitate to push the limits with God. See, this event, the way I'm understanding it, it, it seems to be intended as a representation of that lifetime of wrestling and God's giving him a visual. And the visual is this, when you fight with me, it will cost you. And he gives him a blow. And that's what Hebrews actually interprets. This is the Hebrew language says, it was an actual fist blow to the hip, knocking it out of the socket. If, if it's God and God wanted to, God could turn him into a pile of oil. Why would God physically wrestle with him? I, I think it's for this illustration so that he understands you will not contest with me going forward or it's going to cost you. And from this point forward, Jacob's going to walk with a limp. 
And like I said, if you've ever injured your hip, you know how painful that can be. Verse 31, now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. So it's early morning. It's daybreak, and he's had this very weird night experience. And he knows it wasn't just a dream because he's actually limping. And the thing about a limp is it's with you wherever you go. Once you own a limp, it will slow you down. But you're also reminded with every single step what caused it. And it's designed to keep his attitude in check. Now, let's move into 33, and we're going to wrap it up by seeing how this plays into all these details. His family and all that he has is scattered. He's on one side of the river, they're on the other side. The livestock that he worked so hard for, he sent it out. All that he labored for for so many years, he sent it to his brother as a peace offering. And now Esau's coming at him, and he's wounded, physically wounded. Verse 1, then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children out front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. So as his brother with these 400, I'm understanding them to be warriors, they move toward him. Jacob prepares for this face-to-face -face encounter with no idea what to expect. And so he lines his family up in these three groupings in a very specific order. Now, who would want to be at the front of that line? Not me. I'm not wanting to be out front. So first he's got the handmaids and their children. I, I didn't track what all their names are, but they're very specific part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he puts Leah with her children, and then he puts Rachel with young Joseph. Jacob hasn't been born yet. Now check this, though. After everyone is lined up, he puts himself at the front. Because Jacob's heart has changed that much. It's no longer about protecting himself. It's about protecting others. So Jacob goes ahead of all of them. He's going to be the first one to meet Esau and these 400. Now, from Esau's perspective, he sees this approach coming at him. And at the front of this parade coming toward him, he sees somebody who looks like his brother. But he's so old. 20 years have gone by, and he's limping. He even looks like dad a little bit. And he's bowing, and he's bowing. Even while he's limping, he's bowing, verse 3. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed to the, down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Bowing in the Bible is a sign of subservience. Bowing twice, bowing three times, bowing seven times. That's a sign of subservience before royalty. He's exalting his brother visually so that everyone can see. Seven times they know what that means. Now that in itself is a lot to take in, and that is when the emotion of the moment begins sweeping over Esau. Verse 4, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And if you're new to the story, you probably didn't see that coming. Look at the reconciliation. Esau sprints towards Jacob, and Jacob can't run, and he doesn't know why his brother's running at him, but he's got a busted hip, and so he can't get away. And what no one anticipates 
he falls on his brother in this huge embrace, hugging on his neck. My friends from the South, Vicki Palmer used to say this all the time, I just want to hug on your neck. I didn't know what that meant. It seemed like they were going to choke me or something. They just meant really embracing. I just really want to hug you by the neck. And they're weeping over the lost years and the past hurts, but also the tears of joy of reconciliation. Now, mind you, while this is going on in the background, you've got still the sheep bleeding and and the donkeys and the camels and the cows are mooing and the, the children are laughing and they're watching their dad roll around on the ground and all the women are mounted on the camels. And we're told this, in those moments, Esau looks up through tears and through blurry eyes and he sees God's great blessing to Jacob. Verse 5, he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And I'm envisioning Jacob introducing his very hairy, very red-haired brother to his family. Esau can already see Jacob has learned how to prosper. He's seen all this livestock go by him just from the magnitude of this tribe. Remember, materially, he had nothing but a staff as he went across the river. And now not only has he become rich in material wealth, but he's become the patriarch of a future nation. And in this, Esau now understands that Jacob has learned to care, to really care for people. To care for others, not just for his possessions, but care for people, caring for those who are in his charge. So Jacob presents Leah, the one whom he was tricked into marrying. But he's been faithful to her and he's cared for her through all these years. And then he presents Rachel, his heart of hearts, the one through whom God taught him patience, the one who through whom God taught him tenderness. And the fruit of that love for Rachel has produced a true love child, Joseph. More on him next week. Verse 8, and he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Verse 9, but Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And I'm envisioning when Jacob takes hold of his brother and he looks so deeply into the eyes of the person whom he has wounded so severely, He no longer sees Esau as someone to be conquered, but as a true brother. A true brother who has been deceived and cheated just like he has been deceived and cheated by Uncle Laban. And Jacob now understands this familiar yearning of his brother to only want to be in a deep relationship with a restored family member. And in that moment is when Jacob says, I see in your face the face of God. I know what it is to be restored. And you have received me. 
So he says that to him, 33 verse 10, I see your face as the one sees the face of God and you have received me favorably. And I'm certain, church, in this moment, it's at this point in time, this remarkable peace is settling over Jacob's heart. Because there is a gentle calming that comes across your soul when your heart is recognizing that things have been set at one again. When you come to the communion table this morning, it's that reminder that Jesus not only interceded for you, He reconciled you to God, and things have been set at one again. So there should be a gentle calming that just floods over your soul, a true reconciliation of relationships. It is a soothing salve to your soul. Now, obviously, if there's a need for reconciliation, it means things were seriously broken. Only an hour earlier, Jacob thought that his family is going to be slaughtered, and he's attempting to minimize the damage. But now, he's a guy who's ready for a very peaceful walk at a leisurely pace, and I know that to be true because of how this ends. It ends in verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children. I'll leave it there for you to read later. But that sounds like a really nice afternoon walk. You're moving along at the pace of cattle, at the pace of children. I take that. All the cares in the world have evaporated. You've been restored to relationship with the one whom you've wounded so severely. The fact that we need reconciliation in our world means something is broken. I think we would all agree that things are broken in our world. We know that. As a believer in Christ, you can see brokenness all around you. You don't have to be a believer in Christ to recognize things are messed up. See, that we need reconciliation with God means that our relationship with Him is broken. But praise God, I hope you say amen to this, reconciliation with God is the work of Jesus Christ. That's what He did for us. He restores our relationship to Himself. Sin alienates us from a relationship with God, but praise God, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sin that comes with it means that if you receive it, you are reconciled to God Scripture says this in Colossians 1.21, You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. As a result, He has brought you into His own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. That is a total change in the state of our lives. Did you know that the entire Bible is a story of reconciliation? From beginning to end... We started off in the garden as friends of God, living in fellowship with Him, but sin entered and the relationship was completely broken, and we became the enemies of God, living in open hostility against Him. 
But because of Jesus, enemies no longer knew hope. Scripture says this, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is a record of God reconciling us to Himself. We ran away, but He pursued. We're in darkness, but He sends the light of the world. We're scattered as lost sheep, but He sends the Good Shepherd. And as those who have been reconciled to God, we have now been given the ministry of reconciliation because we're like Jacob. We know what it is to be apart from God and to be brought back into this relationship. We know what it is to be restored. So therefore, you can be trusted with a message of reconciliation. That means you can take this message to a dying world who is utterly separated from God. Here is the message you carry, New Hope. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. That's a message worth telling. It goes on to say, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I'm not going to stop there. One more verse, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. So with that, we get to take communion this morning. Thank you, God, for what you did through Jesus for us, reconciling yourself to us. And he did all the work. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's instructions to the church. If you're new to New Hope, we read this as a tradition here, just a paragraph, and then I'm going to give you instructions on how to receive communion. Paul does it this way. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now hold on for just a minute. I know there's individuals here who have not taken communion before. And I want you to understand what you're about to do. When Jesus held up the cup and when he held up the bread... He was giving us something that he said would be representative of what he was about to do on the cross. His body would be broken on the cross, so he gave us bread, a representation of his body being broken for us. His blood is about to be shed on the cross, so he holds up the cup and he says, just like this cup, drink this in remembrance of what I'm about to do for you. So when you pick up the cup and you pick up the bread, each time you do that, you remember what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. And because it is so huge, we get this warning from Scripture. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, lest you disqualify yourself from taking of the elements, New Hope, at here our church, our requirement is only that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, why would you want to take it, first of all? But the, the disqualification is if you're doing it lightly, Paul got after the church because they were just treating it like anything else and they weren't taking it seriously. So he said, examine yourself. Make sure you're not out of relationship in the sense that you've got sin between you and God. So we always encourage you to examine yourself before you pick up the elements. But also, if there's unconfessed sin, deal with it right now in the quietness of your seat. Talk to the Father before you come up and pick up the elements. Now, in the front of the auditorium and in the back of the auditorium, you'll find tables And individuals will be standing there, and they're there simply to remind you of what you're picking up, the body and the blood. And take it back to your seat, hold the elements, and I will talk you through the rest. But right now, this time is for you to talk to your Heavenly Father.
If you're physically able uh, to stand, can I invite you to stand together? I had said earlier, if um, you're not a believer, you wouldn't necessarily want to participate in this for this primary reason. What you're about to do is to be a witness to the person on your right and on your left that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're taking it boldly and you're saying, I believe this. We understand that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Father, I thank you for the bold witness of this church, the lack of fear of what people would say, but rather the love of knowing what you have for us. Thank you for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We praise you and thank you for the reconciliation you gave to us. It's in Jesus' name we come before you and all God's people said, amen.